A few years ago, I really don't know how many years ago, there was a TV ad that I remember quite well. Well, I remember the ad, I don't remember the product. Um, but it was by some kind of fast food chain. I don't really remember if it was McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, you name it. But uh, it featured uh, a character actress, and it was attempting to make the point that this uh, particular brand of hamburger was better, or at least larger, than the hamburgers of the rivals. Because this character actress, I believe she was in um, the movie Throw Mama from the Train. I don't know if you remember that one. But she was the mama that was to be thrown from the train. And she had a very raspy, gravelly voice. She was very funny. And in this commercial, she was given her hamburger at uh, this unnamed joint. And she pulled out the top roll, and she looked at it, and she said, Where's the beef? Where's the beef? You remember that one? Oh, good, good, good. Huh? Wendy's. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, that, now that that's clear. Um, and uh, I couldn't help but think of that commercial as I was uh, trying to prepare these lessons uh, to say something halfway cogent today. Uh, I would like you to look at your bulletins where the gospel is written. It's not, what, the inside uh, of page two, I guess, uh, toward the bottom. In the middle of the gospel passage, you'll see that it is divided into two paragraphs. Can you see what that is? Okay. Now, um, the passage that I read begins at uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And by the time I got to the end of that passage, it was Mark chapter 6, verse 56. But where you see a new paragraph beginning in the middle of it, there could be, if I was a really uh, particular editor about this sort of thing and grammarian, I would say, why don't you put dot, dot, dot between those two paragraphs? Because there's a lot missing there, folks. Well, that is where technically Mark 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 35 through verse 52 are in the Bible. And our lectionary selection just skips over a whole section, verses 35 to 52. So someone might be tempted to say, where's the meat of the passage? I didn't particularly like those other two. They weren't very exciting. Jesus going around talking, big deal. I know all about that. I want to see a miracle. That's what Jesus is for. Well, that's not necessarily wrong. So I'll, let me fill you in as to what is in those missing passages, uh, 35 to 52. First of all, there's a little uh, incident reported where uh, the crowd was following Jesus and the disciples knew that it was getting late and the people were getting hungry. And so uh, they said, you know, why don't you just send them off so they can get some food in, in the neighborhood? Now, it shows that they were kind of missing the point of the crowd being gathered together to listen to Jesus because in those days, uh, these were a lot of farmers, and what they would want 
day to day, would be able to provide their own sustenance food from their farms. But the fact that they were gathered out in the wilderness somewhere was an indication that there was nothing to bring along, basically speaking. They would have loved it if they could have gotten back to their own, their own farms and fed themselves, but such was not the case. And instead of uh, being very sympathetic, Jesus said to the disciples, well, if they can't go back to their own farms, you feed them. And the disciples, as you and I would do, said, but we only have five pieces of bread and two fish. There's 5,000 people here. And Jesus said, okay, <laughs> we'll use what we've got. And he blessed, that is, he thanked God, and broke the bread and began to instruct the disciples to hand it out, and all 5,000 people plus were fed. That's the first part of the missing passage. Then the narrative records that finally Jesus does manage to send the crowds away, and he tells the disciples to get in the boat again and go back on the other side of the uh, lake, the Sea of Galilee, again, because he wants to go off to pray by himself. And so far, uh, things are going well. The crowd does begin to disperse after being fed and satisfied, and the apostles are in the boat sailing off into the sunset. Yeah, he was facing west. Um, and so uh, Jesus went off to pray. However, meanwhile on the lake, a storm was arising. You know what's coming. Storm was arising and the disciples were scared out of their skin because the boat was about to capsize or be swamped by the waves. And they were probably saying things to each other like, well, it's a good thing that Jesus wasn't here. My God, we wouldn't want to lose him. If one of us dies, it's not so bad, but you know. Um, but uh, Jesus wasn't there. He was praying, evidently. And the storm got worse, and the storm got worse, and uh, all of a sudden, they see something in the distance. And you might think they would be comforted, but no, because they thought it was a ghost. And it turns out it was Jesus walking on the water. Hmm. Funny thing to do. Without a boat, evidently. Not even a little raft. And so Jesus climbs in their boat, and the storm stills. The wind dies down, and it's calm. And you mean to tell me that the lectionary skipped over these parts to go to the dull part about crowds gathering to hear Jesus? Yep. That's exactly what they did. You know, you and I have got to talk to some of these people that arranged the lectionary. I mean, they, they just miss the, miss the good stuff. So we go from kind of a boring thing and skip over all these exciting things and come to another boring thing about Jesus with the crowds. So, by comparison, I guess, today's important text, rather than the full text, is being, is being like, is like being handed a hamburger, ostensibly, and finding out that the hamburger you were given consists of a top roll and a bottom roll. Where's the meat? Where's the beef? 
So, I guess that means if we are only willing to identify stories of Jesus, the miracle worker, the wonder worker, with anything worthwhile reading in the Gospels, we're going to be unsatisfied with a vegetarian meal of our hamburger. But maybe, just maybe, the lectionary folks aren't quite as neglectful or stupid as we might suppose. Maybe they're encouraging us to consider some of the non-miraculous elements of Jesus' ministry as having as much significance in the long run as the spectacular shows. What's to be gained? Well, I would like to risk asking you to consider what it means to maintain the church. Now, if there's any, is anyone here on um, either Alter Guild or Bills and Grounds Committee or something like that, Vestry? Don't be afraid. <laughs> I see some reluctant hands going. Now, I'm not going to ask you to talk, but if you're feeling something in the pit of your stomach going, oh, God, we're going to hear this. No, I'm not even going to report on the general convention, even though I would like to say one or two things. Just going to talk about maintenance a little bit. Today's Old Testament lesson has us look at a similar situation in King David's time where we would find ourselves very much at home. King David loved God a lot. God had been very good to him. And as uh, the various wars uh, took place and he won them, and he came to be an uh, undisputed leader of Israel and Judah, and they even built him a nice house to live in. And he, after he moved in and he was all comfortable, and he came to the point where he was feeling just a little bit guilty that he now had a very fine palace to live in. We might have called it a palace, but but in those days it was a palace made of the finest cedar, very expensive wood to get. The cedars of Lebanon had to import them. But David thought, gee, as nice as this is, God's shelter is still the tent of meeting that we've been carrying along for some generations now. Yeah, it's, it's stuck in a, in a, it's under cover, but it looks pretty flimsy and crummy compared with my new house. Is that any way to treat our God? The God of Israel? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The one who uh, showed Moses how to lead us out of, out of Egypt? Just a tent of meeting. And in it, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant that chest that was uh, considered God's footstool. And in it, they assumed, and we can assume, I guess, that uh, was some form of the uh, Ten Commandments written either on tablets of stone or copies of them. Anyway, it was very precious to them, and that's what was on the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, Dave um, checked it out with the prophet Nathan, and he said, you know, Nat, I'd kind of like to do something better for God than 
this kind of ratty tent that we've got for him. And Nathan said, I believe that is a good thing, Your Majesty. God is with you. Go ahead. But, as is so often the case in the history of Israel and Judah and the Christian church, we thought things were going fine with our plans, but all of a sudden God steps in, delivering to Nathan instructions as to what to say to King David. Not exactly, but roughly this. Am I complaining about my headquarters? Am I complaining? Do you hear me complaining at night? No, no. I'm, I've been living in that tent for a long time now and keeping up with you guys as you moved around. That's been okay with me. I'm going to take care of my own house. Let me tell you, David, my adopted son, I'm going to make my house out of you and your descendants. And it will last forever. God's home on earth was at that point promised to be made out of stone, not stone and wood, but flesh and blood. And the king's reign or throne was to last forever. Boy, if God is going to take care of that kind of maintenance, that's a big job. That's some buildings and grounds committee. Christians who trust in Jesus' saving cross and resurrection must surely be forgiven, I think, for seeing all this imagery as fulfilled in only one person, Christ Jesus. Who else could it refer to? A house built of flesh and blood that would last into eternity. Pretty cool, huh? I think so. Anyway, so now what? Can we take a peek inside this house of God? Now, if we want to move in, it's good to know how the rooms are arranged and all that sort of stuff. Well, the answer to that is yes. We can look inside. But don't worry about looking too far away from where you are. The architecture of the house of God is built right in. Listen to the words of the apostolic tour guide who wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Now, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two that used to be insiders and outsiders, thus making peace. Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the house of God 
built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for the Lord. Let's always keep in mind, folks, it's not always easy to do, but let's keep in mind a verse out of the Psalms. Actually, it's Psalm 127 in the very first verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He has decided to build his permanent temple out of flesh and blood. I see a lot of other things around me in this particular version of the temple, but I see the real temple only in the flesh and blood in front of my eyes. Let us remember Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build the house labor in vain. And the Lord has chosen to build with flesh and blood. Amen.